This is the continuation of the conversation about spellcasters in Primeval Fantasy. We're talking about the system and how we've worked through the years to have uh, PC casters exist and yet keep them rare and restrained enough that they enhance rather than detract from the kind of fantasy world that we love. A setting like Beleriand or Middle-earth or something in that ballpark, a world where magic feels mystical and mysterious and mythical, where the spells that are being cast do not move us anywhere in the direction of comic book superhero characters. So one of the restrictions we have, again, to help magic main special is that if you're going to be playing a spellcaster, that is where all of your time is dedicated. Without your magic, the, as a general rule, the spellcaster is a weaker fighter, poor skills and everything, um, because what we have is magic is your life. It's the, the most important thing for, for different reasons. It's the most important thing in your existence. And we can put lots of different narratives on it. And that should be done per character. So uh, one thing that springs to mind is that magic is the only true reality. And everything physical is secondary. And so here I am, a physical being in the world, but magic is like my breath. It's my sustenance. And so the narratives that we put on being a spellcaster really enrich the game. We, what we don't want is, well, magic is just another tool in my satchel. We don't want that. That, that really damages the, the feeling of the, the world and the, the setting we're trying to generate together. So the, an easy way to think of this is that magic use anyone Anyone who has magical ability isn't actually a human. Think of them as another creature. They are something different. They're not human. That might be the way to think about it. If, someone's, if someone has magic, they're not a human. They are a different thing. And you could make up a word for that. It doesn't matter. But that might be the easiest way. They look like a human. They walk like a human. They talk like a human. But they're not. They're something different. Just like if there was a vampire... We might say that vampire walks like a human, that vampire talks like a human, but it's not. It yeah. is something different. Uh, and that is what a magic user is. And even at the most basic level, like let's say that there's a person and he's grown up his whole life in the forest. He's a woodsman. And he thinks that there's this tree in the forest that if he takes a nap under that tree, he'll see the future. All right. And that's what he believes about it. And it doesn't matter if it's true or not. That's what this person believes. If that were part of the mechanic of the magic in that particular campaign, that person is not a human. That person is something else. They're a forest spirit of some kind, and they just don't know all about themselves, right? Yeah. So because these humans who wield magic are a different type of creature, they interact with reality differently than a human. And they're not going to spend time learning how to swing a sword. Why would they when that isn't nearly as important as magic? Yeah. And, and of course, that's 
there's there there is an exception. Our system does have battle mages, and these people are. It's a very expensive sphere to purchase it at the beginning of character creation because it is. It's the kind of sphere that turns this this thing other than a human into a murderous weapon wielding savant of battle. Mm. Uh, so it's very expensive. Like if you, if you take that sphere, you're probably not going to have any other sphere. Yeah, that's important. Let's talk about the spheres and character creation. So whenever a player makes a character and a player, I mean, obviously some spheres are more powerful than others. And so we created a sphere system and a subsphere system, and we took the ones that were obviously uh, of great practical value, and we made those more expensive, and then kind of have a tiered system going down. Yeah, I, I really like that. As again, we're wanting to avoid making, you know, superhero characters that is pretty much genre-breaking for the yeah. world that we're after. But, I mean, of course, there's some randomness in character creation, and your most recent mage really is a super genius. Uh, I don't remember what the odds were, but we have to re reward that with you being able to do more and greater magic. Yeah. Um, so the spheres themselves, what we have instead of classes and types of spellcasters that are broken down into easily categorized um, descriptions. We have all of these different spheres of magic and your character has a finite number of points to purchase the different spheres in and then to have spells within those spheres. So if you have a spell that you want, but you don't have that, uh, that sphere, the answer is either no or extremely difficult later down the road. And I love that restriction. Yeah. So my role, my dice were hot and I rolled this character and I realized I got to play a magic user because this, this scores off the charts. Right. And uh, we thought that we had enough constraints on magic that this was going to work out fine. But it turns out we, we've since had to tweak this magic system because of this, this character is too powerful. Again, what one of the things we thought was, let's say that he doesn't have the light sphere. He doesn't know how to make light. He, he shouldn't be able to figure out how to make light. Like that should be so befuddling. I don't know how to make light. I, you know, I can, I can do this with nature and that's not the same thing as making light. And I don't know how to do it. I can't fathom it. Right. So that puts a constraint on them. So basically at the beginning of your character, whenever you choose your spheres, you're choosing, these are the things that my character is going to be able to do. And anything outside of this, it is unlikely he will ever, figure out how to do that he could see it he could be around a fire mage who can turn a can light a candle but he doesn't have the paradigm that allows him to light a candle and he never will so that's one thing that we've done with the spheres we've kind of made them um much more rigid and we found we needed to do this because every mage needs to be unique 
and um, magic needs to be unknown. So that means you don't get to figure out how to light a candle unless you're a fire mage. And then they have something else. They have something they can do that they have a different way of interacting with reality. And all of a sudden they can do that, the, a cantrip that no one else can do, right? Um, so that was one of the things that we noticed, uh, make these spheres very rigid at character creation. Um, and we thought that um, that would balance it, but we've since introduced a new thing as well. Another thing that we think is gonna need, be necessary to balance, and that is some magic carries a curse. Now, I think the minimum right now in the system, the minimum magic user uh, uh, attribute is maybe a 44. Like that, is that right, Daniel? A 44 is the minimum? It would be, uh, well, it's a 45 for bare minimum. We said, bare minimum. So, yeah. So if you have a 45 in some attribute, you might be able to be a magic user. But almost every spell you cast, if you have a 45, almost every spell you cast has a cost. And that's not just how many spell points are directed from your spell pool, but actually the effect that it has on you. You're not powerful enough to wield magic in a way that is consistent or that is free. So, for example, a person with a 45, yeah, they could ignite a candle. But maybe every time they do, their finger gets burned and they actually take some damage. They don't have to touch the candle. They don't have to touch the flame, but there's a cost. Or maybe they can light a candle, but then they're going to kind of be winded. They're, they're short of breath for the next two minutes. They have lost their breath because it took that much out of them, right? So all magic has a curse whenever somebody is just breaking into magic. Now, then on the other hand, if you have a very high score, there might be, uh, you know, something significantly higher than 45, let's say a 52, which is what my character, I think, has. There might be some spells that don't have a curse. You have figured out how to get around a couple curses because, you, because you're so good at that attribute. But still, some of your spells are going to carry a cost. Maybe it depletes more of your spell pool than you thought. Maybe this time when you did it, it did X, but the next time you do it, it's kind of like X, but not quite like X. Maybe you don't have complete control over the magic. Maybe you're trying to light a candle, but what actually happened is it got too hot and the candle completely melted and there's a small fire now that you have to put out. You lost a little control, right? So, um, We've introduced this thing about magic having curses, and that's going to be more detrimental. The, the greater the spell, the more powerful the spell, the worse the curse. And also, the lower the attribute, the worse the curse. And we've done this because uh, even with the, with the ways that we have, the limits that we have put on the magic system and also on character creation and the spheres and the will effects, Despite all of those limits that we imposed, it was still just a little too easy for a mage to cast a spell. And there ought to be a cost. It could be something as simple as you're really fatigued and actually you need to take a nap. Um, you're down until you get a good three-hour nap. It could be something like that, but it, it should have a cost. Um, yeah, those nuances. I mean, the, and the myriad of nuances uh, are are really important to solidify that that feeling that in the world, magic is not, you know, as constant as gravity. Magic is not like swinging a sword. 
it, it is really variable. And so the idea of, okay, here is a cleric and we know that a and here's the narrative for a cleric. A generic narrative is you're a priest, you pray, you get this many spells, and you cast them and go about your way. And um, I, lo- I love the idea of the gods and spirits being involved in, in mages or mystics in the world, but I don't like how clean and easy that old paradigm is. Um, yeah. And... And on top of that, I love the idea of the player not knowing what the rules are with those with those nuances. It could be something like your character knows that by doing this particular spell, you'll be tired or you may be hurt, but you don't know the rules because then your focus has been shifted away from my character is a mystic who is tapping into something and I'm going to try to do something. It, it shifts your focus onto kind of wargaming mechanic analysis. And we don't want that. Yeah. That's the, that's a different game that other people are playing. It's not the game that I want to play when I role play. Yeah. And the GM should feel free to sprinkle in unknown varieties to keep the mage so that they're always on their toes. This time I lit the, the candle and the, for some reason the, the flame is blue and everyone is going to know that this isn't a real candle and it also makes the light look different. Uh, and, and that's fine. And next time, maybe for some reason it's normal again and the character doesn't know. And another, yeah. And the other unknown, which you brought up was about the name that we give to this kind of power. Is somebody a magic user? Is someone a mystic? Is somebody a cleric? And the truth is you could have any name you wanted and you should use every name that you want. They could simply be, you know, a witch or whatever, as long as they don't understand the rules. They need to not know the boundaries. They need to not understand how the magic system, how it works. And I really like the idea of even having them believe something about themselves that is ontologically different. Like they might say, I'm actually not a human. What I am is a God that's been reborn into a human body. And I just haven't figured out my Godhood yet. They yeah. might think that, or I'm not actually human. What I actually am is a water spirit and I've taken form and I've still got some water abilities uh, on land. And that's what they might think. What they actually are is irrelevant. That's because right. It's completely fine for them to not know what they are. What species are you? I don't know. I can do these things. No one else can. I must be different. Yeah. Yeah. And that the GM should never, I mean, even in in any GM only spell book, and I say that hoping that people will, will hold on to that, but they probably won't. But even in the books that are made for the GMs, it's not going to be hard categories it's going to be lists of options that intermix with the particular spheres and the particular spells within each sphere. And that that creates just thousands of varieties. And that's what we really want. The, um, okay. And, and then this gets into, let's talk about this, the spell creation itself. 
So you start off. Spells, yeah. Yeah, uh, you have your spheres. You have your relevant magical attributes like your intellect or your intuition, or uh, could just be your willpower, depending. Yep. So you would start off with something like three to six spells per sphere, right? Yeah. We need to make it so that you can't make a spell on the fly or even in a short amount of time that's going to get you out of this situation. And the reason is because you start getting into superhero kind of realm. We don't want that. So we've, we're going to tighten this down again. And there needs to be some kind of cost. Either it's an enormous cost of time, like it literally does take months to make a spell. Or there's an enormous cost to your physical health where, yeah, you can make this spell, but really it's going to make you have, um, you know, a, a terrible um, nightmarish sleep that leaves you exhausted for the next two weeks. And you actually are really debilitated for two weeks. So there's going to have to be some kind of cost so that people can't do this kind of thing on the fly. Yeah, I'm reminded of the the Excalibur movie uh, from the 80s where um, even Merlin says, uh, I had to sleep for nine months after casting that spell for you. And so here's Merlin, the most powerful wizard in the world, and he has to go to sleep for nine months. And and nuances like that are just really uh, enriching. And they they keep the magic user in the realm uh, that we need, which is esoteric power that no one really understands, but it isn't reliable. And in, in what I mean by that is that you can't do it over and over and over, and it will always be the same. And sometimes things will get out of hand, or some things, sometimes things will be muted, and you can't make spells quickly. Now then that puts a significant hamstring on the character, but that also allows other people in the party to have a significant role. It allows the GM to come up with things that are challenging without having to deal with this superhero that's running around in the game system. Yeah. So we haven't figured out the the current, what we're working on right now with the magic system is figuring out a little bit slower spell development, spell creation, so that this is balanced a little bit more uh, and I think, I think once this is done, we're going to have a pretty robust system that keeps magic users in check and keeps them being wonderful, full of wonder, makes them feel very unique and yet makes uh, the world unpredictable. The easiest thing for a, a group to do is to have a, have no spell casting players. Yeah. Because that really pushes the feeling of the awe and mystery of magic. If you have a group of people who have no supernatural whatsoever, when they encounter anything, it is automatically more impactful, right? Um, but I mean, People love playing spellcasters. I love playing spellcasters. Yeah. And the, the whole uh, project here is to have a fantasy role-playing game of the particular subgenre that we want that still allows you to cast spells. And that's always been the challenge. I think that also GMs should feel 
comfortable with creating uh, or having a spellcaster in their campaign. And that spellcaster can only do one thing. This is one spell they know. They, they don't have any other spells. Um, and, but every now and then they can do this thing. And that's, that's okay. You don't have to have a whole, you know, a whole folio of different spells that this person has. It is okay that a, that a spellcaster can only do one thing and they can't conceive of doing more. Yeah. That yeah. becomes a really rich role playing thing. Like, no, I can't do that. I can only do this. Right. Yeah. It, I, part of that is breaking away from whatever our tradition or history has been with role playing, where we think in these categories of, Oh, you're a warrior. Oh, you're a mage. Oh, you're a priest. We, if we get rid of those and we just have the supernatural be this ephemeral thing. Now, on, I should also say on the GM end, it's not ambiguous. The GM should have a clear set of rules for here's what's happening. And when things are random, the GM is rolling dice and relaying information. So it's not all just like ad hoc it's, it's not just GM fiat. It is clear rules that the GM has, but then as it's relayed to the players, it becomes mysterious and it, it retains its mythical status that way. So let's talk about spell casting itself. And like you alluded to earlier, the problems we faced years ago. Yeah with uh, Tostumus, uh, it was too easy. Yeah, so we've changed the system now with the will effects, and this is a really good move. Like I mentioned, I think it's the best move we ever came up with with the magic system, so that magic always takes too long. It always takes too long, except for a handful of spells that you have cast so many times, you can actually do them kind of quick. And that really makes the situation much harder on the, on the magic user and also makes every magic user unique. Like if there are two fire mages, one of them might have some kind of heat wall thing that he does and it's incredibly painful and everyone who is in the heat wall takes damage. But maybe this other fire mage, he doesn't know how to do that one bit. What he does is he shoots a little ray of fire out of his finger and it hurts somebody. And they both don't know how the other person's doing it. And they, 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 they can't create a spell like that until they see someone else do it. And they're like, oh, my gosh, my world just got bigger. Right? So every magic user is going to have different will effects. And that makes them do different things quickly. And, and we wanted it that way. But the big advantage is you can have a kind of a, a large spell book that maybe has 30, 40, 50 spells. But really, only three of them can be cast quickly. The rest yeah. of them take rituals. And they, that means they're still useful. Like if you're in a dungeon, you're in some kind of cave and, and you need light. Yeah, you can cast a light spell. You're going to have to give me 10 minutes because it takes me 10 minutes to get a light spell going. And we're going to sit here in the dark for 10 minutes. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. It makes the characters, makes the players make different choices and hard choices, which is good. Yeah, yeah. In addition to the will effects, uh, where we're um, introducing in this next iteration, the cost, uh, uh, like a curse, that, that some spells always have a curse, and some casters always have curses. Like if they're too weak, 
they're going to have to pay prices. And if the spell is too powerful, they're going to have to pay something. And there's going to be a list of different curses. Some of them, the GM can simply roll randomly and find out what court, what curse is going to strike that time. So we've got the will effects. We've got the casting uh, curses. And then the other thing is that we're thinking about is the spell point pool. So how, how much depth does a particular character have that they can each, you know, in a given day, how many spells can they cast? And this is something that over the, over previous iterations, we have found players, the character, the player character develops too deep of a spell pool. What's really fun is when you have a challenge that you have to overcome and there's a spell that will really, really help. But if you cast that spell, you are going to have used up almost your entire spell pool, which means saying no to a bunch of other things you might need later. Like, yeah, I'm in this fight and I can cause this person to trip. And that's probably going to help us win the fight. But if I do, I don't have enough power to do a healing spell after, which means somebody might die. So am I really going to do the trip or am I going to um, save this spell points for a healing spell, right? We want that kind of trade-off. And what that means is that an individual's spell point pool, the reservoir of power that they have, needs to grow extremely slowly. It should grow. You know, someone who's been a spellcaster for 60 years should have a deeper reservoir than someone who's 18 and just learned a couple spells. It should grow, but it should grow extremely slowly so that you're always having to weigh what are the best options here. I can't do it all. So three things, will effect, casting curses, and now a slower spell pool growth. I like all of that for what it does for the, for the subgenre. It, it's funny how many, every time we go through a new iteration of getting away from superpower, we find that the previous one just didn't cut it. <laughs> didn't cut it enough. Yeah, every time. They're still too powerful. I think we're getting close. The next thing that I'm toying with, which I think has some real payoff, I really like the idea of I as a player, when I'm casting spells, am not looking at any numbers. Let's say I have a spell that throws a, a golf ball size uh, bolt of energy or fire that can hurt someone. What I, don't, what I don't like is I know that this spell does X number of damage to the person, and I don't like that I know exactly how much it costs. What I would prefer as a player would be, I know that I have this spell that can hurt someone. And I know roughly, I have a feeling of how much power it costs me. Yeah. I don't know. What are, what are some, what's the con side of that? I know what the pro is. What's the con side of that? Well, some people really enjoy knowing the details of a magic system so that they can min max, right? So that they can uh, exploit the way uh, the magic system somehow uh, there are people who enjoy that part of role playing. And so this particular magic system, which tries to keep players from knowing how things work, 
um, might not be as attractive to some people, but there is a really rich payoff here because it allows magic to be full of wonder, uh, which, which is awesome. Now let's say that you have this character who can do a golf ball sized blast of energy, and that's going to harm something. This character has learned that spell over years, which means that they've cast that spell at first on just inanimate objects. And then at some point in time, they might have actually used it against a human. And so they're, they're starting to master the, that spell. But the problem is every human's a little bit different, right? And some humans seem to be terrified of this thing, and it has an enormous impact on them. Other humans seem to um, aren't, aren't even sure what happened. And they're, they're like, something happened. I'm not sure what's going on here. And the, and the GM needs to leave out of the open so that so the character doesn't know exactly what the spell is doing. But reliably, overall, it's going to terrify somebody and harm somebody, but you don't know how much. What do you think about the player not knowing exactly how expensive a spell is? I like that. It puts a little bit of weight on the GM's shoulders. So somebody in the campaign needs to know how, how deep your reservoir is and where does that leave you. But I think that the GM could be satisfied here with doing something vague, like you're pretty sure if you cast that spell, well, you, you'd be able to cast another one, but maybe only one more. You think that this is going to take a significant amount of your discipline and, and you'll be tired. So some kind of vague description like that, or there might be a spell and the answer is actually you think you'll cast that spell and you won't even notice that it's tapped into your reservoir. That's something that you can do several times a day. Yeah, I, I real, I'm really drawn to that. It, it's impossible to know how many people would like or hate that. I mean, some people will hate the idea of their spell casting being restrained at all. They really do want to play world of warcraft where magic is everywhere and you are just throwing nuclear bombs everywhere but um, i mean that people like that wouldn't enjoy this system at all anyway true i like the idea of the gm having the being the one who knows how much the reservoir because there have been so many times where i've been in a situation and i'm like okay i need to cast this this and this Where's that put me in my spell point pool? How much energy will that take? What will I have left? And I do the math ahead of time. Yeah. And um, there's a certain amount of fun to that. But you lose something too. It becomes mechanical. And uh, it stops being quite as much wonder. Yeah. I mean, what, what you just described, I really love that for like miniature wargaming. I love calculating the numbers and, and the odds. And then that's part of the strategy of tabletop wargaming. But for me, that, that damages the role-playing experience because then I'm no longer matched up with my character's perspective at all. I'm, I'm wholly meta. Yeah. And meta is the enemy in, in my mind. Yeah. It should be reasonable also if like, let's say if you have a spell that's a golf ball sized energy blast, it's reasonable to think that even someone who's had that spell for a long time has never 
record themselves into that spell. They've never been in a situation where they're like, I'm about ready to die. I just got to put everything into this and hope it does something. They might never have been in that situation. Even a mage who's been around for a while might never have reached the ceiling. They don't know where the ceiling's at. They haven't needed to. And maybe they find something out about themselves through some kind of role-playing moment. That's really rich. All right, so Drew, can you think of um, any examples when you were in a situation when your characters cast spells and that it was a really rewarding experience for, for its nuance or for just the way that we game? Yeah, and actually, the one that comes to mind is from this most recent campaign. Now, I, I mentioned to your audience that my first character that we really ran with the magic user was this knowledge mage, Tostumus. And the knowledge mage changed the GM's job because instead of the GM having to have little breadcrumbs that the party is following, you don't have to disclose anything. It's up to this knowledge mage to figure out what's going on, right? Um, and he was asking, you know, Tostumus was asking the stars and asking the gods, trying to find out all kinds of things. And sometimes he got it right, sometimes he got it wrong. But it changed the, the role of the GM. Now, in the second campaign, this, um, this magic user that I'm running right now, his name's Callisto. He's not a knowledge mage. And in fact, he, he doesn't know how to gain knowledge at all. He's a nature mage. And I remember that we had been following the trail of um, a bad, a particularly bad person who was cutting across the wilderness. And it's easy for a nature mage and also a hunter to follow a trail cutting across the wilderness. But then all of a sudden the trail stopped. And we could tell that this mage had done some kind of magic to conceal the trail. And it was now magically gone. It just disappeared. It abruptly stopped. The ranger couldn't figure out anything. I couldn't figure out anything. And um, we were stuck for a bit. And then we realized that uh, this nature mage can see through the eyes of a bird sometimes. And so we walked until we found um, a bird that was circling overhead. We cast the spell. I cast the spell. And this time it worked and the bird happened to be able to have uh, to have a pretty good visibility but we couldn't determine anything a couple days later we tried it again after having moved a little bit further and then sure enough we were able to see the trail uh, start up again the mage had hidden the trail for several miles long enough that people wouldn't have found it just randomly but a bird's eye view was able to find that trail and what i liked about that was a, it wasn't automatic. There isn't necessarily a bird that's paying attention to the ground flying overhead, right? You kind of need a raptor, some kind of bird that's a hunting bird that's going to be looking at the ground, trying to find a mouse or something like this. So we had, so it wasn't, a, it wasn't a given. You weren't necessarily going to have a bird that did what you needed it to do. It wasn't going to be a given that there was that the trail actually resumed. Uh, and in fact, it didn't work on the first day. Um, through a combination of factors. But then later on, it worked, and we were able to resume uh, our quarry and overcome an obstacle. Again, it was challenging, um, difficult to do, but we found success. That was a really rich time for me. 
because I had not used that spell in that way. And it, it added something to the game. What I also like about it is, even though he's not a knowledge mage, he found he figured something out and he learned something that they needed to learn. Where did our quarry go? So, so I thought that was a pretty rich moment. I think that that particular spell is a useful spell in a very specific circumstance and otherwise is far less useful. That's kind of rich too, right? Having, having that spell in the toolbox is really good, but it, it's kind of a very specific tool. Uh, so I like that. That'd be an example of a, of a particularly rich moment in the campaign that included the limits of a spell, but also a, the utility of it. And it allowed something. So many times uh, I've enjoyed watching when the players turn to the caster and say, the implication is, can't you do something about this? And the answer being, no, of course not. What could I do about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So what do you that's, think I am? Yeah, less is absolutely more uh, when it comes to magic. I think of spellcasters in the world like music. Uh, in our case, we're wanting subtlety and nuance and having spellcasters be common, uh, especially with huge spells. It's like 1950s big band music mixing with death metal. Um, so spellcasters being common uh, with these kinds of spells always changes the world. It always changes the genre. There's just no getting around it. It's a grinding down of the genre that that at least I'm after. I know a lot of us are after, and I think some people are after and they don't know that it's a possibility. They, they conceive of things like having spellcasters changing the world and then that's just the way it is. And so I mean, really, that's what this project is about. How do you keep spellcasters in the world without ruining this particular subgenre? Yeah. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts for today about magic before I get back to work on it? Well, I like what you said about less is more. I think that we have found that exact thing over the last probably, what, 30 years as we have continually... <laughs> scaled this mat these magic users we've scaled them back over and over and what we have found every time is that there's a moment of painfulness like oh shoot this mage can't do that anymore there's a moment of painfulness but there is a much richer uh series of moments that follow where you have to do less or you have to do more with less you don't have as many spells you don't have as much uh of a pool of power to draw from you can't cast them fast. But each one of those adjustments was a wonderful, it added a wonderful difficulty to the, to the whole dynamic. And it, and it allowed challenge. Something that's difficult but can be completed. And, and we need that. We want, we want it to be challenging. We don't want it to be easy. We don't want it to be impossible. We need to be challenging. And that means have the magic users constrained less yeah. is more yeah and that simultaneously protects the subgenre after there there are not going to be nuclear bomb fights 
It's not yeah. going to happen. But I mean, that's all by design. That's to yeah. keep the player, you know, the characters that we play, they have their feet on the ground. They are not anime characters. They're not comic book characters who are flying around like Superman, hurling meteors and wiping out armies and cities. That's a different subgenre of fantasy. And that's fine. If you love that, that's great. But a lot of us really don't want that. I think a lot of people really want to feel like they're in the tale of, of Beowulf or Lord of the Rings or Silmarillion. They want that feet on the ground experience with these opportunities to touch the supernatural. They don't want to be flying around like little gods. And that's, that's what this is about. All right, Drew, uh, great uh, interviewing with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep. This is fun. All right, we'll do it again. All right, bye-bye.